Our learning objective is to value common stock using the constant growth model. When we talk about valuing stock or valuing any security, we're talking about computing what we call the intrinsic value, which is what we believe the stock or the security or asset to be worth. And the basic definition of intrinsic value is the present value of the expected net cash flows that accrue to the owner of that security. For stocks, there are two expected net cash flows, and these are the cash dividends that are distributed to the shareholders and the selling price. So if we model that basic concept, intrinsic value is based on the present value of the dividends that the shareholder would receive and the selling price, then you would come up with an equation that says the price of the stock, that is the intrinsic value, would equal the present value of the dividends that are expected to be paid during the time that the investor holds that stock. So we have a holding period here. So if the holding period is five years, you would have five years worth of dividend payments. And then you add to that the present value of the uh, expected selling price at the end of the holding period. Now, this holding period model is misleading because what we are doing with that model that I just relayed is that we are defining the price of the stock in terms of the price of the stock later. Well, you know, that's, that's basically a circular argument. So it begs the question, what determines the price at which you can sell the stock? Well, think of it this way. You have the first investor who buys the stock and plans to hold it for a certain time period and then sell it. So the intrinsic value to him is the present value of dividends plus the present value of the selling price. The person who buys it will pay a price based on the dividends they expect to receive plus the present value of their selling price. So if you substitute that, those numbers into our previous equation, now you have the present value of dividends for the first two investors plus the present value of the selling price for the second investor. Which brings us back to the question, well, what determines that selling price? Once again, it's based on the dividends that the third investor expects to receive plus the third investor selling price. And we can plug that back into our equation, which would now read the price of the stock today is based on the present value of the dividends that the first three investors would receive plus the third investor selling price. We could repeat this argument ad infinitum, and so each time you repeat it, the selling price is pushed further off, and you have more dividends that are inserted, and eventually the selling price is moved off to infinity, and you're left with a statement that says, in reality, the price of the stock today is based on the present value of the dividends 
that the shareholders would ultimately receive. In other words, the selling price of the stock is nothing more than a surrogate for the dividends that would be expected to be paid thereafter. A cynic might say, well, you know, once I sell the stock, what do I care what the dividends are that are paid? Well, <laughs> the cynic should care because why would anybody pay him for a stock if they believe that from that point on the company would be worthless? So there has to be a basis for value to the subsequent investor. And that's the dividends that are paid after the first investor sells the stock. So this model to say that the price of stock is based on the present value of dividends that are expected to be paid would be a correct statement of intrinsic value. Unfortunately, mathematically, there's nothing you can do with that model. Well, a fellow by the name of Myron Gordon came along and said, you know, let's, let's make a very limited assumption here. Let's assume that dividends will grow at a constant rate G forever. And we'll assume, of course, that the discount rate, that is the required rate of return on the stock, is greater than this growth rate for the dividends. And when you make that assumption, uh, it turns out that uh, our equation for the value of stock can be incredibly simplified. When you think about the mathematical implication of uh, Gordon's assumption, what he is saying is that the dividend in any period n is equal to the dividend in the previous period, period n minus 1, times 1 plus g, which is just a mathematical way of saying the dividends grow at a rate of g percent each year. You can also rewrite this to say the dividend in any period n is equal to the dividend that was paid at time period 0 times 1 plus g to the n power. That's another way of saying dividends grow at the rate of g percent per year. d0 is a base reference rate. It's the dividend that was just paid yesterday. d0 has as much value to an investor as my torn movie ticket stub from last weekend. D0 means nothing, but it's a definitive number that we can relate all future dividends to in uh, Gordon's growth model. So if you make the assumption that Gordon uh, suggested, dividends grow at a constant rate G, you plug that into our equation and you do some wonderful algebraic manipulation, you can end up with the statement that the value of stock today is equal to next period's dividend, that is D1, the dividend to be paid in the coming period, divided by the difference between the required rate of return, R, and the growth rate, G. Sometimes this model is stated in a slightly different version where in the numerator 
we use D0 times 1 plus G. D0 times 1 plus G is, of course, D1. But the reason that we have these two versions of the model is sometimes on exams you will encounter an exam question that says something to the effect of the company expects to pay such and such dividend next period. That means you use D1 in the numerator. You use that number given. In other problems, you would, uh, the, the question might suggest that the company has just paid a dividend or last year the dividend paid was, and then you get an, uh, an assumed growth rate in the dividend. Well, in that type of problem, the number you're being given is D0. And therefore, you have to use the second version, which says take D0, multiply times 1 plus G, and then you have your numerator. So when you encounter on a test a problem involving the Gordon growth model, you have to be very careful in the wording to see, are they giving me D0 or are they giving me D1? Let's consider a practice problem. Dividends per share for the SSS Corporation last year were $1.40. If these are expected to grow at a rate of 5% forever and you require a 10% rate of return, what is a fair price for the stock? And I'll give you two choices. A, $29.40 and B, $28.00. For the solution, we start by noting the wording in the problem. $1.40 is last year's dividends. So this is D0. Step one is to convert this to the expected dividend for this coming year, which would be $1.40 times 1.05, 1 plus the growth rate, which is $1.47. Step two is to divide this uh, by the difference between the required return of 10% and the growth rate of 5%. So you get $1.47 divided by 0.10 minus 0.05. So the denominator is 0.05, and that makes the answer $29.40. Let's think about the implications of the growth model. Now, I appreciate the Gordon growth model is a very simplistic model. To think about dividends growing at a constant rate forever is simple. However, we find so often in the world of investments, the more realistic you make a model, the more realistic you make it, the more complex the model is. And so simpler models are easier to work with, but they're not as realistic. And so there's a trade-off between simplicity and uh, complexity. Okay, well when we look at the growth uh, Gordon growth model we see three things. First, a reduction in the required rate of return, that is if you reduce the discount rate the value of the stock would be higher. Translated that says the less risky you think the stock is the more you're willing to pay for the stock. 
The second observation is that an increase in the expected growth rate of dividends will cause the value of the stock to be higher. So the faster you think dividends will grow, the more the investor would be willing to pay for the stock. Now, remember, let's think about where do dividends come from? Well, dividends are declared by the board based on the earnings of the company. So when we talk about dividends growing at a faster rate, we're also talking about earnings growing at a faster rate. And where do earnings come from? Well, you have to go back to the income statement and see that it starts with sales. So normally, earnings growing faster would be associated with sales growing faster. So don't think that the model is so myopic that it just says all you have to do is think about future dividends. If you think only about dividends, you're probably not going to have a very good assessment. You have to think about sales and earnings in order to understand what might be uh, the likely path of future dividends. And the third implication of the model is you, if you increase uh, next year's expected dividend, that is D1, then that would also increase the price of the stock. We have talked about G representing the growth rate in dividends, but there is uh, an alternative interpretation to the number of G. We start by taking the Gordon growth model and solving for the discount rate, and we get that R would be equal to D1 over the value of the stock plus G. Now, D1 over the value is the expected dividend yield. So the, the discount rate, the required return, is the dividend yield plus the growth rate of dividend. When we talked before about the return to an investor on a security, we said the return is equal to the income the ex investor expects plus the change in value. And so we could put that in an equation to say the return an investor expects would be the expected dividend yield plus the annual percentage price change. So our first equation dealt with the required rate of return and the second concept, expected rate of return. In equilibrium, these two are equal because if expected return exceeded required return, people would buy the stock, driving up the price, which drives down expected return. If expected return were less than required return, people would sell the stock, driving down the price, and the lower the price, the higher the expected return. So simply put, if we all saw a stock that said, based on risk, I should require an 8% rate of return, but I actually expect a 10%, well, that's sort of a windfall gain there, so people will start buying the stock, driving up the price, and as a result, expected return would go down. So, if the discount rate equals the expected return, 
Then dividend yield plus growth rate of dividends equals dividend yield plus percentage price change, which means simply when we talk about dividends growing at a constant rate G, you can also associate that as the expected percentage price change. So G can be interpreted as the expected percentage price change or the expected growth rate in dividends. <clears throat> Let's consider another practice problem. If a stock is priced at $20 per share, has an expected dividend payment next year of a dollar per share, and the consensus opinion is that the dividends will grow at a rate of 5% per year, what is the required or expected rate of return on this stock? So we go back to our model, our original Gordon growth model, that said the price of the stock equals D1 over R minus G. So if we solve for R, you end up that R equals D1 over price plus G. So if we now plug in our variables, we plug in a dollar for the dividend expected to be paid next year, divide by the price of $20 per share, we add in our growth rate of 5% and we get 5% plus 5% equals 10%. So our required or expected rate of return is 10%.